The episode you are about to listen to was really intended to be watched as a video. You'll probably hear that as I'm talking through these things in this episode, I'm annotating and making markings on the passages and showing things on the screen. So if you would like to watch this episode, I'll make sure to include a link to the video version in the show notes of this episode. But either way, whether you choose to watch or listen, I do hope that the information is beneficial and a blessing to you. If you are blessed by the resources produced through Great Light Studios and want to help support me in continuing to do all this, then you can find information about how to in the show notes of this episode. And also, would you consider leaving a five-star review on this podcast? Positive reviews go a long way in helping to get this content pushed out to more people. With all that said, thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy this episode. What I want to do is compare Romans 9 to Galatians. In Galatians, Paul is making an argument that I think if if uh, we look at it, we can see that his argument and the case he's making in Galatians is very similar or, or even almost identical to the argument that he's making in Romans 9. So I believe Galatians holds a lot of keys to understanding uh, Romans 9. And so yeah, I just I want to look at that today. I want to com- look at Romans 9 and then kind of compare it to some passages in Galatians that I think will really help to unpack what uh, the, the case that Paul is trying to make um, in, in Romans 9. So Romans 9, 1 through 5, Paul says, I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed. Um, I'm going to highlight, circle here, kind of the key words that I'm going to go back and compare to Galatians. And, and this right here, when Paul, the just right here in the third verse, Paul uses a couple words that when compared to Paul's argument that he makes in Galatians, I think it becomes really clarifying to what he's, what he's trying to get at. So he says, I wish that I myself were accursed, separated, uh, let me circle these two words. So accursed and separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren. So the Jews are accursed and cut off from Christ. And so again, the question is why? Why is this the case? The Jews have pursued righteousness. They, they have the promises. They have, you know, they're, they're descendants of Abraham. But now God is saying that, you know, basically saying those who are called my people are not my people and he's rejecting them. And so why? Why is this the case? Um, Calvinism, ultimately, I think the way they would interpret this in a, a sort of a rough summary would be that because of God's sovereign determination and choice of every individual to salvation or wrath, that is kind of the answer to why they're being cut off, is basically that God determined, it was his determination before the foundation of the earth to choose certain people for wrath and certain people for salvation. And so ultimately, they would say Paul's point is that God is sovereign and he does what he wants and he's decided from eternity past who will be saved and who will be cursed and cut off from God. And so the reason, the answer, they would say that Paul is giving to the question of why is, well, because God sovereignly determined it to be that way. He chose it to be that way. He chose these people for that purpose to ultimately to uh, 
to be vessels of destruction and wrath for the purpose of bringing glory to him. And that's his choice. Who are you, O oh man, to question him? And, and so that's that would kind of be a, a rough summary of the Calvinist takeaway from Romans 9. But I think Paul is making a much different case when we actually understand the argument that he's trying to make. And, and I think Romans 9.30, I'm going to jump there. This is at the end of the chapter, but here Paul kind of gives his summary and conclusion to uh, really the argument he's making. And so I think this is very insightful into understanding really the whole case he's making in Romans 9. So he says in, in Romans 9, starting at verse 30, what shall we say then that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness but Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. And so, again, um, here's the question. Why? why? Why are the Jews who pursued righteousness and they have the law, they have their DNA connection to Abraham, they have the promises of God, but they did not, uh, they did not arrive at that law. They did not attain righteousness. And so they're saying, why? Why is God rejecting them? Again, this is where the, the roads would split between Calvinism and, uh, and the view that I want to give. And the Calvinism would go the way of saying, well, the reason why is because God simply chose it to be that way, that God would not grant them repentance and salvation. The road I would take is to say that, and listen to what Paul says in verse 32, it's because they did not pursue it by faith. Uh, but as though it were by works. So the Jews were, were attempting to attain righteousness, not by faith, but by works of the law, by their own efforts, by their own willpower, by their own human exertion. And what they, they were trying to bring something to the table before God. And, and for that reason, Paul says, they were being rejected. Um, and, and so it says they did not pursue it by faith. Uh, and so rather than coming to God the way that he has chosen for us to be able to approach him, they didn't pursue it that way, but they pursued it by works. So, so Romans 9, the conclusion Paul reaches, uh, really you would expect that if Calvinism were true, when Paul says, why is this the case in verse 32, why is this happening? You would expect Paul to say something like, well, because God simply chose that because God is sovereign and he does what he wants and he simply determined this to be to happen, and he determined for these people to be rejected, and he determined for these Gentiles to be accepted. This is what he determined from before the foundations of the earth. But that's not what you see here, but rather you see an argument for faith. You see Paul's whole point is all about faith versus works. And so his reasoning, his conclusion is, is very simple, and it's very familiar to, to the rest of Romans. It's an argument for faith. It's an argument for, for salvation by faith alone, and, and it's, a, it's an argument for God's choice of salvation by faith in Christ and re his rejection uh, of, of saving people through works, his rejection of works and his acceptance of faith. Um, and this is the stumbling stone. It, 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 he goes on in verse 32. He says, they stumbled. The Jews stumbled over the stumbling stone. And so uh, what is the offense? What is the stumbling stone here that's offending them, that they're stumbling over so that they're not actually, they're pursuing righteousness, but they're stumbling so as to not actually reach it? What is that stumbling stone? And so here Paul says, in, and he quotes the Old Testament in verse 33, he says, just as it is written, behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling, 
a stone of stumbling and a, a rock of offense, which is, which is Christ, which is faith in Christ. And he who believes faith, we see faith here, the one who believes in him, believes in Jesus, will not be disappointed. So the stumbling stone is the gospel. The stumbling stone is simply the gospel of faith, that God saves people not by works, but by faith. When people bring to the table only faith, they're not bringing anything to God. They're not bringing anything meritorious or deserving of forgiveness or grace or acceptance. When people bring faith to God, all they're doing is saying, I have nothing, I have nothing to bring, and I need everything from you. And that's the stumbling stone, that the Jews were missing the simple gospel, childlike faith, and, and receiving God's grace, and coming to him for his provision instead of trying to provide uh, for ourselves. And, and, and so the Jews were coming with self-provision. Self um, the Jews were, they were coming in the flesh. They're coming by works. They're trying to reach God by what they could do. And Paul's argument in Romans 9 is that God, God is sovereign. And Romans 9 is absolutely about God's sovereignty and his right to do whatever he wants. The question, though, where those, you know, like I said before, the two roads kind of, uh, they go different ways, is that what has God actually chosen? It's absolutely certain that Paul argues for the sovereignty of God and his right to do absolutely what he wants. But again, the question is, what has he chosen? And Calvinism would go the way of saying, well, he, he's chosen who to save and who to reject. But, but that's not, you know, what, you know, regardless of whether that can be found other places in the Bible, you can't find that in Romans 9, that argument. The argument that Paul makes for what choice God has actually chosen in his sovereignty is that he's chosen faith. He has chosen faith as the way through which people will uh, be able to come to him and be accepted by him, and he's rejected works. And so again, I would say Romans 9 is absolutely about God's sovereignty, and it absolutely makes an argument that God is uh, sovereign. He does what he wants, how he wants, when he wants, and nobody has the right to question him. And, and Paul makes the case that God has sovereignly determined something in Romans 9. The question is, what is that determination? What is it? And I think it's clear that that sovereign choice that God has made that Paul's arguing for is that he's chosen to save people by faith and he's chosen to reject the works of the law. And so here I want to compare uh, Romans 9, 3, kind of going back to the beginning of Romans 9, where Paul kind of sets up, I believe, the, the whole case that he's going to try to make and the whole uh, explanation that he's going to give. You know, really, it, it's Romans 9 seems to be really about answering the question of why. Why are the Jews cursed? Why are they separated from Christ? And so Galatians 3.10, um, I believe, answers part of that. And so focusing in on the word here, accursed. What causes a person to become accursed from Christ in this context? Why are the Jews accursed? Why are they separated from Christ? So in Galatians 3.10, Paul says, all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. So in Galatians, we know that the whole argument Paul is making is an argument of, uh, for faith versus works. He's making the case that the way God wants us to relate to us, the way that God has sovereignly determined 
that we, we can relate to him. And the only way to reach him and attain righteousness, Paul says in Galatians, is through faith. It's through faith and it's through grace. It's, it's through receiving God's grace, his provision for, for us and not trying to bring our own self-provision. That's what he's getting at when he says relying on works of the law. So in, in Galatians, you know, the church was, um, they were going back to reverting to works of the law. They were trying to observe, you know, uh, uh, ordinances and rules and, and, and uh, different things which they, they thought were going to earn points with God, that we're going to get them in the relationship, it was going to make them more complete and more full in their relationship with God, and it was going to help them to earn their, their righteousness and, and keep themselves righteous before God. And so Paul is saying, no, you, you can't do that. Don't go back to that. Um, and if you do, if you do go the way of the law, you're under a curse. And so that's, that's really, I think, clarifying to answering this question of why in Romans 9, why are the Jews cursed and cut off from Christ? And so again, what we're seeing here uh, is nothing, nothing like the, uh, the direction that Calvinism or Reformed theology would take. Um, but what we see is the reason is because uh, it's because of the works of the law, because God has chosen to reject works of the law, and that those who pursue the law uh, in order to attain righteousness will be cursed. And so the answer to the, this first part of the question in Romans 9, 3, why are the Jews cursed, uh, accursed from Christ? Why are they accursed from God? Why, why are they under God's curse? The answer that we saw both in, in, uh, in, in Romans 9, 30 through 33, which is the conclusion, is because they pursued the law. Uh, they pursued righteousness through the law and not by faith. That's exactly what we see in Galatians that Paul is trying to convince them to only pursue the righteousness, only pursue righteousness by faith, and, and they're, they're being tempted to, to revert to pursuing righteousness by the law. And that's what was causing them to be in danger of being under God's curse. And that is why in Romans 9, Paul is explaining that, that the Jews, the Israelites, are under God's curse, not because of a predetermined and mysterious election or determination by God in eternity past, but, but, but because of their pursuit of righteousness by the law. And so again, the next part of the question, let's answer that. So what causes a person to be separated? Or I think some translations say severed or cut off from Christ. It kind of gives the idea of like a, the head being chopped off. And, and so they're, they're just disconnected. They have no connection to their own Messiah. So Galatians 5.4, answers the question of why. He, he tells the Galatians who are, being, who are reverting back to law-keeping, he says, you've been severed from Christ, um, you've been disconnected from him, you who are seeking to be uh, justified by the law. Here's the same thing. So, so if we want to answer the question of Romans 9 that I think Paul's trying to explain throughout the whole chapter, why are the Jews cursed and separated here we see in Galatians 9, separation or severing from Christ comes by what? What, what caused it in Galatians? What caused the, the Galatians to be in danger or to be separated from Christ, according to Paul? To be cut off from the Messiah, to be cut off from the, the vine? Well, here it, it's, again, it's because they were seeking to be justified by the law. That sounds very familiar to me. Um, it sounds a lot like Galatians 3.10. And it sounds a lot like Romans 9.30, the conclusion to Paul's whole argument in Romans 9. 
which is what? Which is, okay, again, he's answering the question, why? The, the whole point of Romans 9, why are the Jews cut off? Why is God not accepting them? Why have they pursued, pursued righteousness, yet they haven't attained it? And why are the Gentiles, who did not pursue righteousness, attaining righteousness? The Jews, the Israelite nation as a whole, is, is coming to God on the basis of works. And so God's sovereignty can, uh, in Romans 9 is all about God's sovereign choice of faith and his sovereign rejection of works. We can see uh, the case that Paul has made just based on those verses, uh, uh, looking at Paul's conclusion in Romans 9.30, and then comparing that to, to what he says in, in Galatians, is that what causes the Jews, what caused them to be cursed and cut off from Christ, really so far we've seen nothing about uh, simply because God simply determined bef from before the foundation of the earth who would be saved and who would not. Um, but what we see is, is that God determined faith, you know, Paul's argument is that God determined faith as the way of salvation. God determined that the way people would be counted righteous, just like Abraham, would not be through uh, natural descent. It wouldn't be through law keeping. It wouldn't be through all these things that the Jews had and boasted in and found their confidence in. Uh, what Paul's bringing up here to, to the Jews that's offending them is that God, God's rejected that. He's rejected works of the law. So I want to get into Romans 9 again. A lot of what I want to do is to parallel Romans 9 to mainly Galatians, parallel it, compare it, contrast it, and show that the same argument Paul is making, the case he's making in Galatians, we had all agree that what his point is in Galatians is to make a case for faith over works. And he's trying to convince the Galatians, you cannot revert to works. You must approach God on the basis of faith. And it's the same argument I believe he's making in Romans 9. It's a very similar argument, at least, that he's making. And in, in Galatians, many Many of the analogies he brings up and the, the uh, metaphors that he brings up, he uses those same metaphors and analogies in Romans 9. And I think that's very interesting and should be very revealing to us about what his point is, what he's trying to get at. And, and what I conclude and what I'm trying to get across is that his point is not to promote a Calvinistic understanding of, of God's sovereignty, that, that God determined before people were born, he determined the individual destiny of every individual, whether to hell or to salvation. I think the clear argument that Paul is making is that he's, he's making a case again for faith, that God's sovereign decision is that he's chosen faith in Christ as the only way of salvation, and he's rejected works. Um, and, and in Galatians, he will say, you know, we talked about last time that those who approach Christ on the basis of works, they're cursed and separated from him. Let's go ahead in verse six of Romans nine. He says, it is not as though the word of God has failed for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. So again, Paul is answering the question, okay, if the Jews, the Israelites are, the majority of them are now accursed and separated from Christ, well, what about all these promises God made to Israel? What about, what about you know, God promised to Abraham that his descendants would be blessed, and now you're saying we're accursed and cut off from Christ? We're, we're not going to get the promises? And so they're like, what, what the heck? What's up with that? And so, again, Paul's going to explain here, God's word has not failed. Even though most of the Israelites, you know, the majority of them, are, they're rejecting the Messiah, and so they're not obtaining the promises, uh, that does not make God a liar or God is not contradicting his promises to them. And now he's going to explain why. And so he says, they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. 
And so the purple here is going to signify God's uh, chosen people. So he says Israel here, they're not all Israel. They're not all true Israel, I think you could say, who are descended from Israel. And so Paul's going to make a contrast here between those who are spiritual Israelites and those who are Israelites just according to the flesh. And so there's a difference. Um, there's a difference between being a, a true Jew, like Paul would say at the beginning of Romans in, uh, I think, maybe chapter 2 or 3. He says a Jew is one who is one inwardly and not just outwardly. So Paul here is going to make the case. He's going to defend God's faithfulness and his truthfulness by saying God's word, his promises haven't failed. And this is why. He says, because not all are Israel who are descended from Israel, nor are they all children. So they're not true children because they are Abraham's descendants. So even though according to the flesh, according to the flesh, they're Abraham's descendants, but they're not true children of Abraham. There's a, there's a category here between just flesh connected uh, descendants of Abraham and spiritual, true spiritual children of Abraham. So to summarize Paul's argument, what, what it is and what it's going to be, uh, I think it kind of go like this. God's promises have not failed because he never intended his promises for natural Israel. So he never intended it for those who are simply connected to Abraham, who are descendants to Abraham, but his promises actually are for spiritual Israel. Again, there's the category. There's the, he made promises to Israel, but when he did that, the mystery was that it wasn't for all natural born descendants of Abraham is the argument Paul's going to make, but it's those who are children of Abraham according to the spirit in Christ. And so God's promises were never intended to apply to all Israel or every individual descendant of Abraham, or every seeker of righteousness according to the law. So these are all things that, this is what the Jews, again, you see at the beginning, that what the Jews were bringing to God was, was the, the, their law-keeping. There were those who inherited the promises that according to the flesh, the Messiah had come from them. Um, they had the law and the prophets. They were God's chosen people. And so they were bringing all these things, and they were expecting that, that because they had all these things, that that was going to make them right with God. That was going to give them the the end with God. And and John, they were so uh, confident that they were God's children. And, and they would say to Jesus things like, we don't have other fathers. You know, we have one father and that's God. And we're children of Abraham. And and uh, and so that that's kind of what's going on here. That's kind of the, the attitude that Paul knows about and that he's preemptively replying to. And so... Again, Paul's argument is going to go like this. God has not promised to all Israel or every individual. He hasn't given his promises to just those uh, sincere, faithful Jews who are keeping the law. But God has a chosen people, again, a spiritual Israel. He has sovereignly determined who are chosen and elect by sovereignly determining how a person becomes chosen and elect. And so that's what Paul is going to explain. This is all, Romans 9 is so much about God's sovereignty. It's absolutely about the complete right and control of God over everything. And he can do whatever he wants, however he wants, whenever he wants. The question that's up for argument here is, is, is not whether God is sovereign and does whatever he wants. The question is, yes, God is sovereign, but what is the sovereign choice he has made? What, what, what does this sovereignly look like? How does this sovereignly actually play out in reality? God can do whatever he wants. But again, the argument here is what does God want? What has he revealed that he wants? And, and we talk, I've talked a lot about the split roads that, that Calvinism would take and that, uh, that I would take and that I believe Paul takes. And so Calvinists would say, 
Paul is, is arguing for here is that he simply determined before people were born uh, the eternal destinies of every individual. And I would say, no, that's not the choice that Paul's explaining here that God has made in his sovereignty, but the, the sovereign choice God has made instead is a sovereign choice of faith in him and a sovereign rejection of works of the law or any flesh or any human effort. He, he, he sovereignly chosen that will not cut it. That will not do it. I, I reject that. But instead, I've chosen faith is what God would say. He's chosen faith, childlike faith. He's chosen the weak thing to shame the strong. Um, he's chosen the foolish thing to shame the wise. And so in, in that in that scripture, you know, the, the parallel would be that the weak thing is, is faith. The foolish thing is simply belief and trust in God. That's the foolish thing. The strong thing is the Jews. They're bringing their, their strength. They're bringing the strength of the their connection to Abraham, they're bringing the strength of their, their, uh, their adherence to the law. You know, like Paul would say, you know, I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. I, I kept the law to a T. I, I was uh, flawless in it. And so that, that, that is what it looks like to bring the works of the flesh, to bring your own human effort, to bring something to, to God, to set it on, on the table before him and say, look what I brought to you. So um, going back to this, again, Paul's argument is that God has always intended his promises for his chosen people. The promises of God, all the promises he gave to Abraham and to his descendants, uh, which we'll find out later, it's not his descendants, plural, that he promised his promises to, but if you go back in Genesis, it was his descendant, singular, that he promised all things to. And to give the ending away, that descendant who God promised the promises of Abraham to was actually Jesus Christ. He's the one person that God gave all of his promises to. And that's an interesting thing that gives a little bit more clarity on Romans 9 as well, which I'd like to get into a little bit more, in a, uh, hopefully, in, in a further video. So God has always had in mind a group of people who would, there should be a D there, that was a mistake, who would be true Israel and true children of Abraham. And so that's his argument for why God's promises haven't failed. Because if he never originally even made the promises to the physical fleshly descendants of Abraham, then his promises haven't failed because he's still fulfilling those promises for the true children, the true spiritual children of Abraham, which that obviously leads, leads us to the question of, okay, then who are these true children of Abraham? Who are they? That's the question that, that comes up from this is who is true Israel? Who are the true children of Abraham? And this is where we, we get to that crossroads of Calvinism and Paul again, is, is where I think Calvinism would go the direction of uh, that God's predetermined elect, uh, sovereignly determined by God to be his elect. So the, the true Israel and true children of Abraham, this is who it is. Um, it's, it's that God chose who will, would be his sons, who would be sons of Abraham, and who will be vessels of wrath. God simply chose every person's eternal destination before they were born. His reasons for how and why he chooses his elect are uh, mysterious, and we don't know. They're ambiguous to us. So again, according to Calvinism, the answer to this question is really simple. But I believe Paul would go a, a different direction. And the direction he would go would be those with the faith of Abraham. God sovereignly determined that he would relate to people only on the basis of faith and not works. God's sovereign decree is that he will reject even the most devoted law-keeping Jew, even with their Israelite descent according to the flesh. So God's mystery, 
the mystery for how and why he chooses has been revealed, is what I'd argue. There's another missed word. I need a Y in there. That mystery is Christ. You know, Colossians will say that, and I believe uh, 1 Corinthians, in the second or third chapter, Paul, is he talks about the mystery of Christ. And so I, I guess it's a little confusing to me why God's elect people, there's still such a mystery. It just There's just... It's a, it doesn't make sense that it's almost as if God, the father had a special relationship with people in eternity past before these people ever had any connection to Christ or any relationship to Christ. Somehow the father in eternity past had this mysterious relationship and this bonding of himself to these elect people, but that came before these people's connection to Christ. So really their relationship, I, I, I struggle to see how their relationship could be said to have come through Christ and and it seems almost in, in Calvinism that uh, their relationship with God came simply by getting to the Father first. And then because God had this mysterious relationship with his elect people, the Father had this mysterious elect people, they ultimately, they uh, eventually came into connection with Christ after their first relationship having that relationship and connection to the Father. But I believe Paul, again, he's arguing here that, that the mystery is Christ, that the mystery of how and why God chooses people has been revealed, and that who he chooses, are, are ultimately he chose Christ, and he chooses those in him. He chooses those who come to him by faith. So when I say God has chosen faith, he's chosen those with faith, I know the reply would be, well, how does a person, a fallen, sinful, uh, unregenerate person have faith? And so, you know, I, I would love to talk about that. And, and I plan on making a lot of videos about that topic. But the point here I'd like to make is that Paul doesn't even bring that up. That's not even up for contention here, uh, whether or not a person can have faith. That's not the point here. The point is simply that uh, that God has chosen faith. Whether or not a person can can exercise faith in God before being regenerated, that's not on the table at this point. So let's just, I hope we can just stay on track and, and, and just focus in on the thing that Paul is focusing in on. So here I want to compare Romans 9, 6 through 8, some of the verses that we're focused on in, in this video, compare them to uh, mainly to Galatians, but there's also one in Romans I want to look at. So again, reading Romans 9, 6 through 8, Paul says, It is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants, but through Isaac your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. Um, so Romans 4.16, let's see what that says. For this reason, it is by faith, in order that it may be in accordance with grace, so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. So again, we're trying to answer the question, uh, who, who are Abraham's uh, descendants? According to Paul, he's making the argument that the, reasons, the reason God's promises haven't failed is because God made the promises originally to true children of Abraham, not to just simply fleshly, uh, natural descendants of Israel or Abraham. So now we're answering the question, biblically, who those are. Here we see that uh, those who are of the faith of Abraham, um, that those are the ones who uh, the promise will be guaranteed to. So let's connect that. So descendants of Abraham, 
are those with faith, according to Romans 4.16. It's, it's about faith. So Galatians 3.7, let's see what that one says. Know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. So we can connect that one too. So it is those of faith. So again, we're answering the question, who, if the promises were originally made to Abraham's descendants, who are they? Let's, again, we're just looking at what the Bible says. According to Galatians 3.7 and Romans 4.16 so far, it's those of faith. Those who have faith, the faith of Abraham, those are the children of Abraham. And again, Galatians 3.7, those of faith are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing, going on in verse 8 of, of Galatians 3, and the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the, gen, the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, again, he's going to repeat it, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Who are Abraham's children? Who are, who are the true children of Abraham? According to Romans 4.16 and Galatians 3.7. Right now, we see nothing. There, there's just no mention. There's no reason to, to, to lead us to the conclusions of a Calvinistic predeterminism uh, an individual selection of, of individuals before they were born in their eternal destinies. Now, again, I would say maybe I'll grant, maybe that's somewhere else in the Bible, but so far we're not seeing that. You know, if we just compare Romans 9, 6 through 8 to other scriptures, there's no reason to conclude that so far. Galatians 3.29 is another verse that I want to compare real quick in answering this question. Uh, if you are Christ, it says, then you are Abraham's offspring and heirs according to the promise. So the condition that, that, that makes us children of Abraham is that first we're, we're Christ. And how do we become Christ? How do we become connected to Christ? What connects us to him? Well, it's faith. We, we become baptized into Christ through faith. And so again, I think that's, that's just saying the same thing as, as these other verses that, uh, that we become sons, we're the sons of Abraham, by faith. And so we can, we can go ahead and connect that one too. That Abraham's descendants, the true children of Abraham, those who are truly Israel, that Paul's trying to explain, are those who have faith. It's those who have the, the faith of Abraham. It comes by faith. So continuing on, uh, finishing up this section in Romans 9, it, Paul says, through Isaac, your descendants, will be named. It is through Isaac. And so this is, Paul is making a spiritual analogy here when he says this. This is really significant when we compare it to Galatians, which is what I want to do, um, and, and see the, the way that Paul uses this spiritual analogy, the spiritual metaphor in Galatians. I think, again, it's really revealing. So he says, it's through Isaac your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh so that, like this distinction again, it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but it's the children of the promise. These are the ones God has chosen to give his, his uh, promises to. So again, we know, we know clearly what this reveals is that God is sovereign and he has a sovereign people that he, he has chosen who will get his promises. He makes a decision what, who will get them, what kind of people, who they are. And, and so the question then becomes, okay, who are they? 
who has God chosen? How does he choose people? Why does he choose who he chooses? Does the Bible have anything to say about that? So let's, let's first look at this, focus in on through Isaac when he says that um, in, in verse 7. So to do that, let's look at Galatians chapter 4, verses 22 through 29. I'm just going to read this section, and, and then we'll go, after I read it, we'll go back through. But just listen to what, what Paul says. Remember that this uh, Galatians, it, it, the whole point is a, that the topic is Paul making a case for faith uh, versus works, right? Faith versus works of the law. And the Galatians were reverting to works. And Paul was making the case, trying to convince them to not do that, but to remain, to continue approaching God on the basis of faith and don't revert to works. So Galatians 4, 22 through 29, let's see what Paul says. He says, for it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. His son by the slave woman and here's this word that's going to come up, it was born according to the flesh. But the son by the free woman was born as the result of a divine promise. These things are being taken figuratively. This is very significant when trying to interpret Paul's point in Romans 9. So if you're going to focus on anything, I'm saying focus in on this. These things are being taken figuratively when he brings up Isaac, that's what he's doing right here. He's bringing up the story of Abraham. God promised Abraham a son. And, and what Abraham and, and Sarah did is eventually they said, okay, God's not doing it. He's not getting it done. Let's do it for him. So what did they do? They went out, they got Hagar, the, the Egyptian slave woman. Abraham slept with her, had Ishmael. That was the child born according to the flesh. Here, Paul says these things are to be taken figuratively. It's an, it's, it, there's a spiritual analogy. There's a spiritual uh, metaphor, if you will, th that is coming out of the story of Abraham and, and uh, Isaac and Ishmael. And so he says these things are be, to be taken figuratively. The women uh, represent two covenants. Uh, one covenant is from Mount Sinai. So just to distinguish these, there's two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai. What happened at Mount Sinai? The law, right? The law came. So this one is a represent, representation in Galatians. What Paul is doing is saying, look, the, the slave woman represents the law, right? Represents trying to come to God on the basis of your own works. That's what Paul's trying to get at in Galatians. And bears children who are to be slaves. So in Galatians, what he's making the case for is, look, if you go back to trying to work your way to God, you're just going back to Mount Sinai. You're going back to the law. You're going back to slavery. And that's the woman. That's what Hagar represents. That's what Ishmael represents is works of the flesh. That's his point in Galatians. This is Hagar, he says. Hagar is, in this analogy, Hagar is the law. Hagar is the flesh. Hagar is the Galatians trying to approach God on the basis of their works. Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem that is above, let's switch the colors here, the Jerusalem that is above is free. She is our mother, for it is written, Be glad, barren woman, you who never bore a child. Shout for joy and cry aloud, you who are never in labor, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. Now you, brothers and sisters, like Isaac, 
like Isaac, there's Isaac. Connect that back to Romans 9. Through Isaac, Paul said in Romans 9, your descendants will be, will be made. Here Paul's saying through Isaac, or like Isaac, you, brothers and sisters, are children of promise. There's both of them in Galatians. And Paul says the people who, in Romans 9, the people who get God's promises, the people who God has chosen, who are they? It's the people who come through Isaac, and it's the people who are the children of the promise. These things both, like Paul says, are to be taken figuratively. They're spiritual analogies. So who are these that come through Isaac? Who are the children of promise? Here Galatians is explaining it. Um, it, it's, it's those who are of faith, who remain in faith, who approach God on the basis of, of faith and not works. Um, that's Paul's point. That's his argument in Galatians. So when he uses those same analogies in Romans, I think it's fair and legitimate to say that that's the same way he's using these analogies. Is he saying he's saying he's contrasting faith and works here? He's not contrasting God's uh, unconditionally elected and unconditionally reprobated people, but he's contrasting those of the, with the faith of Abraham and those who, who approach God on the basis of works. So he says, you brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are children of promise. At that time, the son born according to the flesh persecuted the son born by the power of the spirit. It is the same now. So we are children of promise. Who are children of promise? Well, children of promise are those with the faith of Abraham who, who you know, in Abraham's seasons of waiting and trusting in God's promises, ultimately that's what he did, is he believed God promised, I will give you a son. You know, the flesh is that that picture of Abraham and, and Sarah saying, God's not moving fast enough. Let's get out there. Let's get this accomplished for ourselves. That's the flesh. That's what Israel was doing in Romans 9 when they're, they're trying to approach God on the basis of their own works. They're trying to get done for God what God has done for us in Christ. And, and uh, they're trying to approach God on the basis of their works. And so, so children of promise, though, are those who, who are represented by Abraham and Sarah in their moments of faithfully and patiently waiting. Um, in Hebrews 11, you know, God remembers them only for their faith and not their, their failure and their unbelief, which just shows the mercy and love of God. But, but children of promise are those who, like Abraham, depend on God by faith, who, who don't revert, who don't approach, try to approach God by their own works, works of the flesh, their own energy, uh, bringing to, to God their own human wisdom and, and, and trying to earn their way to God. Children of promise are those who have childlike faith, who say, I can't do it. They're the poor in spirit. They're the weak. They're those who, who uh, hunger and thirst for righteousness, who are insufficient in themselves and recognize that. And they come to God and say, uh, they come to God and say, you must do for me what I can't do for myself. And they trust his promise. They trust his promise of provision that ultimately has been fulfilled in Christ. Abraham was trusting God's provision. And ultimately, that was a preaching of the gospel. That when God said, I will do for you, Abraham, what you cannot do for yourself, that was a foreshadowing of the gospel where, where ultimately God, God did that by providing his son. And he did for us what we could not do for ourselves. So to be a child of promise, in this, in this context, according to Paul's argument uh, and what we see in Galatians, the usage of these spiritual analogies of Isaac and Ishmael um, and, and what it means to be a child of promise, it has nothing to do 
with a predetermined selection of individuals to either salvation or or wrath. Again, I would say there's more in Romans 9, so so let's keep we'll keep going in further videos, but as far as these verses so far, we don't see that. What we see is Paul making an argument for God's sovereign choice of faith over works. I totally understand what Peter means when he says some of Paul's writings are hard to understand, and you can see that. But when you start to understand, man, Paul's making the same, you know, he's, he's got kind of a one-track mind of he preaches faith in Christ, faith in Jesus, don't try to work your way to him. It's all grace. Uh, that's the message. That's the. That's really what Paul is constantly getting at. And Romans nine is no different. And so when I when I started to see that, it was it was just a huge eye opener. And so hopefully you can you can if you don't you know fully believe what I'm saying or think that's it's totally accurate. At least you can maybe see that there is an alternative perspective that I think holds a lot of weight, especially when you compare it to places like Galatians, where obviously Paul's argument in Galatians there's just no debate. His argument in Galatians, his point, his case is to say, God has chosen faith. He's rejected works. Do not go back to works or you will be cut off from Christ. Then you see in Romans 9, Paul saying the Jews are cut off from Christ because they're pursuing righteousness by the law and uh, and they're offended at that. And so he tries to explain, well, look guys, all along God has chosen faith is the way through which you enter into relationship with him. He's never, he's always rejected works. If you actually look at, at the, the Bible, if you actually look at the Old Testament. You look at what he said to Abraham, that, that Abraham's uh, faith was accounted to him, credited to him as righteousness. So so um, the conclusion, I would say, tr uh, true Israel are those who seek God and, and righteousness by faith and not works. God is sovereignly determined to only give the promises of Abraham to those with the faith of Abraham. Paul's point in Romans 9 is to explain that the gospel of Jesus Christ and salvation by faith through him has always been the way that he grants people his precious promises and enters into covenant relationship with them. Paul is preemptively replying to the offended Jew who is seeking righteousness on the basis of the law. Paul knows that those Jews who are the descendants of Abraham and are keeping the law will be greatly shocked and offended to hear that God is now rejecting them and granting his blessings to the Gentiles. Romans 9 is Paul's explanation and defense of the gospel of Jesus. His point is to reply to these offended Jews by showing them that God has always chosen what he wants, how he wants, and when he wants, and that in this case, what he has chosen is to save people on the basis of faith and to reject works, no matter how sincere, devoted, or legitimate those works may be. So that, I believe, is, is in these verses that we've read so far, that's uh, my best understanding, uh, what I believe is the most biblical in uh, my weak way of presenting it. Obviously, I think that's a biblical way of looking at these first uh, eight verses of Romans 9. So yeah, I hope that I've presented this in a way that's loving and, and uh, gentle and respectful. And that's that's really my goal. I know that if I'm I'm I'm, I'm striving to to not be uh, uh, sarcastic or mean or rude or offensive in the way I present this, the way I talk about Calvinism or Reformed theology. That's not my goal. You know, like like James says, he, he specifically says about teachers that we all, in the epistle of James, we all stumble in many points. And so I know I'm not free of that. I'm not free of stumbling. And I know I, I probably have many blind spots in theology where I can't see. And I would need another brother to come alongside me and say, hey, 
look, there is a, you know, there is a better way to understand these scriptures. And so that's all I want to do here. And so I, I, again, I hope I'm doing that in a way that is humble and gentle and loving and not offensive or rude. Uh, my heart is to protect, you know, the, the sheep that might listen to this and help encourage them to, to know that there is a better uh, understanding of these scriptures that presents a more accurate, accurate view of our loving heavenly father, our God, who is sovereign, but he has revealed to us what his sovereignty looks like. And I, I, I do believe Calvinism presents a view of God's sovereignty, which ultimately concludes us to a, a view of God's character that is uh, distorted. Galatians 3.16 has always been one uh, scripture that really stands out to me and I feel like is very significant in, in understanding what it, what it means to be elect, what, what God's election is. And, and so dealing again with, with Romans 9, where we're talking about who did God really make the promises to, and Paul's argument is that he didn't make promises to physical descendants of Abraham, but to the spiritual children of Abraham. So again, the question is, okay, well, who are these spiritual children of Abraham? How do you become one? Who are they? And uh, Paul's uh, explanation for that, I believe, is faith, that that faith in Christ, ultimately faith and, and reliance on God and a, a turning away from self-reliance, ultimately it's that childlike faith, that simple trust in God. That is the, the differentiation between what makes a, uh, a child of Abraham and a just a physical descendant of Abraham um, as far as the Israelite nation goes and, and as far as anybody goes. And so Galatians 3.16, I just want to read that. And, and as I'm reading this, thinking about election, thinking about what it means that God chose people, that he's predestined people, that he's, um, he has a select people that he, he looks at and he favors and chooses. And so with that in mind, it says, now uh, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say to offsprings. So this is the plural it, it's a singular. If you look back in Genesis, even at the, the word, um, the other word used is seed in a lot of translations. It, it, God made a promise to Abraham and to his seed, but it says that he did not make it to seeds. He did not make promises to seeds. And so this is referring to individuals, like uh, uh, multiple people, but he made it to offspring or seed, which means one. God made it, the promise, the promises, all the promises of God, ultimately what Paul is saying here, all the promises God gave to Abraham, he ultimately was giving those not to individuals, not to individual people, but to one person, his son. He ultimately gave all of his promises were, were directed toward Jesus Christ. That's what Paul's saying here. I think that's really significant when we consider this whole uh, issue and debate between Arminianism and Calvinism and, and uh, all these different isms that are trying to figure out what God's sovereignty is and what his election looks like and who he chooses and how he chooses. Uh, that seems really significant to me that right here he's saying God's promises were always to Christ, to one person. So why I believe this verse is significant is because, again, it says that the promises were made to Abraham's seed, 
or offspring, which is singular. So the promises, when God made promises to Abraham, what he had in mind was one person, was Jesus. And those promises were all being directed toward him, and those promises were going to be put in him. Why this is significant to me, I believe, in this whole debate is because uh, Calvinism, I think if in, in the understanding I have at least, and you can correct me if I'm just missing something, but it seems like it would have God directing his promises toward individuals, um, toward his elect people. So before the uh, foundation of the world, before people were even born, you know, he he gives people his his uh, his favor, really. He, he gives people really the promises, even though they might not be aware of it. They might not know it. They might not be conscience, conscious of it until, you know, they're regenerated. But, but really, in the Calvinistic perspective, the elect people have always had the promises of God. They've never been without possession of God's promises. They've always had them. God's promises have always been directed toward his elect people. And to me, that's, that's, uh, that's different than what uh, this is saying, where it says that God's promises were always directed toward one person, toward Christ, um, and, and not toward individuals. Um, that, that what God has in focus is Christ. And so to me, I think that, again, to kind of look at these split roads is where I think when we look at who, who is Abraham's seed and offspring to the promises are made, um, it seems like Calvinism would kind of interpret it as, um, and I know obviously they would, they would know this verse is referring to Christ, but, but it seems like if you actually look at their, their view of, of, uh, what, what, God's promises, where they're, where they're directed toward, that it'd be toward the seeds or the offspring, the, the, the plural, you know, the elect, all of God's elect people. And God had promises to every one of his elect people before they were born. These promises were not the result of their relationship with Christ, but rather Christ was a result of them first obtaining these promises. And this last sentence here is really one way that I'm uh, communicating what is the biggest issue to me in this whole debate. And really one of the main things that motivates me to have any uh, faith or feeling uh, convicted to even speak about it is, uh, I'll read this sentence again, these promises, so, so it seems like in the Calvinistic worldview or perspective, the promises of God uh, and the blessings of God, the spiritual blessings of God were given to his elect people, not as a result of their relationship with Christ, not because they, f they first became connected to the Son of God, became connected to Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life. Um, but it seems like God uh, gives people promises and spiritual blessings first, and that those that favor that that mysterious relationship with the Father somehow eventually connects them to Christ later down the road, and so. That seems to be different than what the scriptures say, what this scripture here is saying, that the seed, Jesus, is the one who had the promises. God's focus was on him. And so uh, I believe the, the, the road Paul would go on and the, the Bible would go on is to say that Jesus, you know, obviously Jesus is the seed. And, and God's, God's promises, God's focus when he made promises and, and gives blessing, spiritual blessing out, is Jesus. And so God elected and chose Jesus. He is, you know, Peter will say that, quote, Isaiah that he is the you know the cornerstone you know the elect and chosen ch 
chosen cornerstone, which is, which is Christ, obviously. So Jesus is the chosen one, and he's the center of God's attention. Jesus has the center of the Father's attention. He's the one that the Spirit speaks about and glorifies and, and, and puts at the center of attention for mankind. Um, and, and so the center, the focus of God's promises were to Jesus, to the seed, and not to individual elect people. God's promises were always to Jesus, and, and that's kind of what uh, Paul is trying to explain, I think, in that verse in Galatians. They were always directed toward Jesus, and, and not even Abraham, and man wasn't the center of that, but Jesus, and it would be all those that were in him that would get the promises that God put in Christ. You know, that's what Paul says, I think, in First or Second Corinthians, it says all the promises of God find their yes and amen in Christ. There's no promises of God outside of Christ. You don't get promises of God outside of Christ. God can't first give you the promise of, of uh, election. He can't first give you the spiritual blessing of election and chosenness and predestination, and then later on put you in Christ. Because outside of Christ, there are no promises. There are no, uh, there is no election. It, all, you know, Ephesians 1 will say that all spiritual blessings are in Christ. So you got that. There's an order to that. You, you've got to be first connected to God through Christ in order to obtain His spiritual blessings. That's what Jesus said. Nobody can come to the Father except through Me. Um, and so, so the idea that God's promises were first directed toward individuals—that He He had all these promises stored up—and He said, "I'm going to give these uh, to these individuals." That's almost um, that's that's out of order. And that might sound nitpicky, but in this context, that's, that seems like Calvinism uh, and Reformed theology kind of misses that here. Because again, it would seem that the promises of God are directed toward his elect people. When Paul would say, no, God's promises have always been directed toward one person, and that's Jesus. And he put his promises inside his son. He put them in the spiritual location of Jesus. And, and then his his sovereign decree, his sovereign uh, plan and purpose was to uh, give his promises to those who got inside Christ. But he doesn't give the promises first. He doesn't first give us promises. He doesn't first focus his promises on his elect. And then because of those promises, as a result of that, that mysterious relationship, put us in Christ. First, he puts us in Christ. First, we get into him um, by faith. And then we obtain his promises, and his promises are directed toward us. So then coming back to Galatians 3.16, again, it says the promises were made to Abraham, to his offspring, singular. It does not say to offsprings, as to many, referring to many, but referring to one, to your offspring, who is Christ. And so when we go back to Romans 9, and we're trying to figure out, okay, who are the children of Abraham? Who are his descendants? Uh, Israel is missing out on the uh, promises of God. They're missing out. They're accursed. They're cut off. They're, they're being judged. And, and, and so, again, Paul will say, well, that's because God's always had an elect people. He's always had, um, there's always been a true Israel, uh, true children of Abraham. And when you look at the seed issue here in Galatians 3.16, I think the result of that is that we, we, we have to see that Abraham's true children are those with faith in Christ, those with faith in the provision of God, those who are uh, trusting in God's provision. And, and so that is, that is the offspring, that is the seed. Um, ultimately, it's about Jesus. Ultimately, it's about who he is and who we become, who we are in him. 
Um, so then Galatians 3, 7, it says, So in Christ Jesus, so in him, you are all children of God through faith. So children of God, the identity of being children of God, it comes through faith. So I think the order here would, would be that first, first is faith, which puts us in Christ, which results in us becoming children of God. And so I think that would be, again, getting back to what Paul's getting at, is that the children of Abraham, those who God's promises have always been directed toward, are all have only been those who would be connected to his son. And that's why Jesus has to be the bridge to that gap. That's why he has to come first. And, and, and that's why being a child of Abraham, uh, being a, a true descendant of Israel, being a true Jew, is directly correlated to being in Christ by faith. And that just goes back to uh, what I believe, again, is Paul's whole uh, point in Romans 9, is to, uh, to focus in on faith in Christ, to make a case for the gospel of salvation only through faith in Christ. And he's making the case that the true children of Israel, the, the true seed, again, that's singular, the true seed, the only seed of Abraham, the only offspring of Abraham are those who are by faith connected to Jesus. We're just kind of going a few verses at a time and trying to track with Paul and, and follow his argument and his line of reasoning and, and just trying to follow what he's actually trying to get at. What is he actually trying to communicate in, in this chapter? and kind of making the distinction between where Reformed theology and Calvinism would uh, take his argument and where I believe Paul is actually uh, intending uh, his argument to, to go, what he's actually trying to communicate. And so to kind of recap, um, verse 6 in Romans 9, it says, It is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel um, who are descended from Israel. So I want to make these distinctions again, just to kind of recap. He says, they're not all Israel who are descended from Israel, nor are they all children, because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac, it says through Isaac. Um, and so as we've talked about in the last videos, through faith, um, your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh, it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise. Um, these are the ones regarded as descendants. Um, so children of the promise. And we're going to look a little bit more about what all these things mean. But right now we can see, you know, we see Paul making this distinction. Um, he says that not all are Israel. So there's a true Israel. So not all are Israel who are simply descended from Israel or who have a natural bloodline uh, connection. What Paul's saying here, that doesn't automatic, automatically mean you are true Israel. You are a true Jew in God's eyes. And so there's that distinction between uh, 
true children. He says that nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. So again, you can be a, a, a descendant of Abraham according to the flesh, a natural descendant of Abraham, and God does not count you still as a true in the spiritual sense, uh, descendant of Abraham. And so again, that's kind of what, what Paul's getting at here is there's the natural descent. Um, uh, those who are Israel simply according to the flesh. Um, and, and again, that's what Paul says that you're, they're Abraham's descendants, but it's according to the flesh. And then there are the true children of Abraham or those who are uh, in the spiritual sense, our true Jews, our true Israel, our true children of Abraham. And that's really the reason why Paul even brings this up is because he's trying to answer the question of, of how is God not unfaithful? You know, the Jews, the, these guys here, the, the naturally born uh, Jews, those who have that DNA connection to Abraham, they're actually being rejected uh, God is actually cutting them off. They're cut off from Christ. They're cursed. And, and while that's happening, the Gentiles are being grafted in and they're actually being accepted by God. And so the Jews who have all these promises, they have the promises of God that, that he gave to Abraham and he gave to the nation of Israel. And they're coming to God with, with their law keeping. They're coming to God with their, uh, with all, you know, their claim that, you know, we have the promises of Abraham, we have the promises given to the patriarchs and to our nation. And now we're being, Paul, you're, now you're saying we're being cut off. Like, that's not fair. How is that right? How is, how is that not making God a liar and unfaithful to his promises? That's basically the question that Paul is preemptively replying to here. And so again, the reason why he's bringing up these distinctions between a true Israel and a uh, a simply uh, a descendant of Israel or a, a descendant according to the flesh of Israel, you know, he's making that distinction between true children of Abraham and false, like not true in the spiritual sense, children of Abraham. The reason he's making that distinction is to explain why God is not unfaithful, why God's promises have not failed, that even though God did make promises to Israel, what Paul is saying is that those promises were only intended for those in within Israel who are within the category of true Israel, those within, you know, the natural born descendants of Israel and Abraham who are in that category of true children of Abraham. God never actually intended those promises or that blessing for these simply natural born descendants of Abraham. The promises were always intended for true Israel, for those who are, you know, like again, Paul says in the beginning of Romans, he talks about those who are true Jews, who are not simply uh, circumcised outwardly, who are not simply uh, Jews outwardly, but are Jews inwardly. And it's a matter of the heart by the spirit. And so those are the those are the people that God always intended his promises for. And when he made promises to Abraham and when he made promises to Israel, the promises of God have always been he's always been focused um, on these this category of people. And so Paul's really just getting at this mystery here, this mystery of salvation, which ultimately is Christ, who is that mystery, who explains it all. And so. So again, as I've talked about in the last uh, several videos, um, that what Paul, I believe, you know, there's the two split roads where we could go, where we could say, okay, so you see here, this is Paul's kind of bringing, 
bringing into light the ideas of Reformed theology and Calvinism, and he's making this case now that, uh, you know, really if you follow Calvinism here, the line of reasoning would have to go something like this, okay, those who are true children of Abraham are those God has simply selected, you know, he's determined before the foundations of the earth, he has his elect people who before people were born, he simply chose who would be saved and who would who would uh, not be saved. He chose who would be true children of Abraham and who would not be uh, true children of Abraham. That was simply a sovereign choice of God. He, he made that choice. It's done. There's nothing that can change. Um, and, and so it's kind of just that fatalistic view, um, that is often taken with this passage. And, and to me, there's just absolutely no trace of that idea in here. The only way that you can arrive at that conclusion to me is if you just kind of completely derail from Paul's train of thought and his line of reasoning and his line of argument here. Um, if you, you know, it's like you're going along and it's like, okay, Paul, if you, you're following what Paul's saying, and it's all about um, his analogies he's drawing, it's all about faith. God has always chosen uh, the basis of faith as the way through which to become a true child of Abraham. And that's why he says those who have the faith of Abraham. And that's why he says, you know, in Galatians, that it's it's those who are of faith who are counted as Abraham's offspring. Those are the, the, the children of Abraham. And those who rely on the flesh, they're not. And so to arrive, I think, at a Calvinistic understanding of this passage, you know, that God has simply chosen who to save and, and who to not save, um, I think you have to kind of just absolutely derail from Paul's line of reasoning, reasoning and his uh, what his argument is here. And so he has this one track really where he's staying on this track of of faith in Christ and the gospel and God's chosen basis of relating to Him, which we see throughout you know so many of His epistles, all of His epistles, and and we see so strongly in places like Galatians. And now I think that's is is so strong here. Um, it's it's that argument of, of God's chosen basis of faith, that the basis by which people um, he's chosen where people can relate to him and enter into a covenant relationship with him is the basis of faith in Christ. And this is the track that that he's on in Romans 9. He doesn't he doesn't switch topics, you know, I don't think midway through Romans. It's it's it began as a, a you know, he's unpacking the mystery of salvation, the full salvation God has provided in Christ. He started with that in Romans and, and he's continuing on that in Romans. The focus is faith in Christ. And so I think to arrive at a, again, to arrive at a Calvinistic conclusion here, you have to start going off the track. And it's like you, somewhere along the road, you misunderstand Paul's reasoning, you misunderstand the points he's bringing up, you misunderstand some of his analogies. Um, and so you just get off track and you, you arrive at a destination that God never intended for us to arrive at here, which ultimately is a perception of his character and his nature that, that is just not true. It's skewed. It's off. And so when we stay on the track of Christ and that centrality of Jesus and that focus on him, um, we ultimately, we end up arriving where Paul wanted us to arrive, which is a deeper understanding of the gospel, a deeper grasp of, of what it means when Paul says in Colossians that God is, uh, you know, we're complete in Christ and everything, Christ is preeminent and he's, he is, you know, he's God's focus really, that, that he's the focus that God wants us to end at. I don't, 
I think it's fair to say that God doesn't even want us to get away from Romans 9. And the primary focus we have is, is a focus on uh, the sovereignty of God. But, but rather, he wants us to come away from Romans 9 with a uh, focus and a deeper grasp, a deeper revelation of the centrality of the gospel, the centrality of Christ in the heart and mind of God, and that Jesus really is the one thing, you know, like David says in Psalm 27, one thing I ask, this will I seek after, that I may gaze upon your beauty and inquire in your temple. And so I think the one thing that God wants us to keep focused on, and the one thing he wants us to come away with in Romans 9, the primary thing is a deeper grasp of the gospel, a deeper understanding of the, the centrality of Christ, and understanding that Jesus is at the heart of understanding God's, God's sovereignty. You know, it's only through Christ that we arrive at a correct perception of, of who God is, what his character is, what he's like, what his sovereignty looks like, what it, what, when we actually see his sovereignty and salvation, it's only through Christ and through the mystery uh, that has been revealed in him that we understand God's sovereignty. And so, again, if, if we miss Christ, we derail from that central focus of Paul, then we're coming away with a, a skewed view of God. So it's the children of promise who God has chosen. It, it's true Israel, those who are true children of Israel that God has, has chosen. And we looked at this a little bit deeper in, in uh, some of the last videos, but the children of promise are who? We've seen that it's, it's those who um, have the faith of Abraham. It's, it's those who are of faith. It's those who are weak and, and come to God, not on the basis of their own strength, their own efforts, what they have to bring to the, to the table, but come on the basis of faith, and they depend and rely on Him. And the, the children of the flesh, um, or the mere fleshly descendants of Abraham, those are, are really, that's Israel. That's Israel who is now offended because of God's rejection of them, um, they're coming to him on the basis of their works and, and what they have to bring to the table and God's rejecting them. And so the, these are the rejected ones by God. These are the ones who are not chosen and, and it's those of faith who God has chosen and who God truly intended the blessings and the promises for. So to continue through uh, this chapter, um, this is where Paul begins to bring up some Old Testament examples. And, and this is again, uh, uh, I think this is one of the, the main places where those who would interpret this through a Calvinistic or reformed lens would begin to derail and they would begin to misunderstand and misinterpret Paul's, uh, the analogies he begins to draw, the Old Testament examples he brings up, and they'd begin to see those and miss uh, Paul's point. And again, like Peter says, many of the things Paul writes are, are difficult to understand. Um, and so I, th I think Romans 9 is a case in point of that. And so let's just look at these, look at some of the Old Test Testament examples he brings up. So Romans 9, starting in verse 9, it says, For this is the word of promise, at this time I will come, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but there was Rebekah also, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born, and had not yet done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose, according to his choice, would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, 
but Esau I hated. So, so first of off, let's focus back in on um, when he brings up the son at the beginning, he says, uh, this is the word of promise at this time. Um, I will come and Sarah shall have a son. So this is a reference, obviously, to Isaac, the story of Isaac, when God promised Abraham and Sarah a son. Um, and so before I want to focus in on that real quick and, and kind of look at what Paul's really, why does he bring up Isaac? And, and again, um, we've been comparing Romans 9 to Galatians. And when we look at Galatians and we look at the spiritual analogy that Paul is drawing when he brings up the, the, the stories of Isaac and, and Sarah and, and Abraham and Ishmael, when he brings those examples up, the spiritual analogy he's really getting at is very significant, again, in understanding what his point is here. And it's very important that we follow that again so we don't lose track of what Paul's trying to get at. And so before that, um, what what he's really doing here and bringing up, he brings up Isaac and, and Ishmael, really, and Jacob and Esau. And so again, what he's doing is he's just drawing that contrast between, you know, there are, uh, there's true children of Israel, there's true children of Abraham, and there are uh, not true. There are those who God has chosen, and there are God, those who God has not chosen. There are those who are really, truly inheritors of the blessing and promises who God really intended the promises for, and there are those who God did not intend the promises for. So he's just drawing that, that contrast again. And so we see that he says uh, there's a son, which is Isaac, and this this is just an example that he's using to to uh, parallel true children of Abraham, uh, true spiritual children of Abraham. Uh, Isaac is is an example of that. And again, the story of Jacob and Esau. He brings up Jacob uh, again as an example of a uh, true Israel. Jacob represents true children of Abraham, those who uh, are really chosen by God. And so again, uh, I think Jacob would be an example of faith when we look and, and follow Paul's reasoning here. Jacob is an example of faith. Isaac is an example of faith. Uh, that that's the spiritual analogy Paul's trying to get at. And when he brings these up, what he's not trying to do is say, see, look, God chose Isaac to go to heaven and God chose Ishmael, Ishmael for uh, hell and he created him for the purpose of eternal destruction. And, and the same deal with Jacob and Esau. That's really a mistake to go that direction, especially when we look closer at, at how Paul uses these uh, analogies in a spiritual way in different uh, contexts, in different scriptures. So first, let's focus in again on the son. It says the, the child of promise. God, God promised Abraham and Isaac. Abraham and Sarah and said that this time I'll come back, I'll give you a son. And that was the promise God made to, to bring, you know, ultimately to bring Isaac. And so that is the child of promise. So again, it's very significant when we compare Galatians to, to Romans 9. So I'm just going to read through, uh, starting in Galatians 4, verses 21 through 31. I'm just going to read through this section, and I think we'll begin to see and understand a little bit more of why Paul is bringing up these examples of, of Isaac and Ishmael, of Jacob and Esau. So Galatians 4, 21. Tell me, you who want to be under law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman and one by the free woman. So here again, we're seeing that same deal. He's beginning to, he's, he's making that contrast. He's, he's, creating two different categories of people. 
those who are children, there's the two sons of Abraham, and, and there's the one who was born uh, of the bondwoman, and, and that was obviously Ishmael, who was created as a result of Abraham and Sarah's self-reliance and their own efforts, their own work to accomplish what God had promised to accomplish for them. Abraham and Sarah, in unbelief, went out and produced Ishmael, which is a picture of the flesh. It's a picture of the human uh, human wisdom, human self-reliance and unbelief in God. And then there was the one by the free woman, which is Isaac. And then he says, but the son by the bond woman was born according to the flesh. So what does that mean, according to the flesh? Well, it's just like I just said, it's according to the flesh that he was born, Ishmael was born as a result of Abraham and Sarah's unbelief in God. He was born as a result of Abraham and Sarah's uh, their their self-reliance, their um, their own their own strength and and their own understanding. You know, it's it's a perfect example of what it looks like to not obey uh, Proverbs three, where we're told to not lean on on our own understanding, but trust in the Lord with all of our hearts. So, Ishmael was born according to the flesh, meaning that Abraham and Sarah got into acting and working in their flesh rather than than walking according to faith when they produced Ishmael. They were working. Ishmael was produced as a result of unbelief. Ishmael was produced as a result of their fear and and lack of trust in God to accomplish what he said he was going to accomplish. And so they set out to do it for him. So he says the son by the bondwoman was born according to the flesh and the son by the free woman uh, was uh, through the promise. So again, what he means here is that Isaac came as a result of a promise that, that yes, Abraham and Sarah did stumble into unbelief, which resulted in Ishmael. They did get in and at different seasons and times they got into the flesh, just like we all do. But this is the grace of God coming through where he says, ultimately, he saw Isaac and or he saw Abraham and Sarah trusting him for Isaac. Ultimately, they though they wavered, though the righteous fall uh, seven times, he'll rise again. And so Abraham and Sarah ultimately believed God for Isaac. When God looks back at this story and sees he love believes all things, love hopes all things, love endures all things. So God looks back at this story of Abraham and Isaac and he looks at it and he so he sees Sarah and Abraham as as enduring in faith and waiting for that promise that God would bring a child to them rather than him, them having to do it for themselves. And so that is what Paul means when he says the the son by the free woman was born through promise that he was born as a result of faith. He was born as a result of, of them trusting God and waiting for him to fulfill his promise. While the, the Ishmael, again, was born according to the flesh, according to their unbelief in God. So Paul basically tells us here that this is what he's saying. So he says, this is allegorically speaking. St- going back Galatians 4 in verse 24, he says, this is allegorically speaking. He never leads that to the conclusion of saying. So what that means is that God predetermined Isaac for salvation and he, pre- he created Ishmael for wrath. He predetermined that he would not be one of his elect. That's just not even close to being in Paul's mind in this example. And when he brings up these two people and when he brings up this story, but he says, this is allegorically speaking for these women, uh, Hagar and Sarah are two covenants. 
one proceeding from Mount Sinai, which is where the law came from, bearing children who are to be slaves. Mount Sinai produces slaves. The children, the, the woman, the mother of Ishmael uh, is, is the, the mother of slavery. She produces slavery. Flesh produces slavery. Our flesh, whenever we get into a place of not believing, not trusting God, and re leaning on our own understanding, that is a reverting back to Mount Sinai. That's a that's a putting ourselves back under um, the, the the woman Hagar, who is who just gives birth to slavery. When we get in the flesh and we don't trust God, we stop relying on His promises. We uh, it, it always produces slavery inside of us and around us, um, and, and that's Hagar, who was the mother of Ishmael. And so, again, Paul's saying this is a spiritual analogy that he's drawing here. He's not literally saying that God, so God chose Isaac for salvation, and he created Ishmael for damnation. That's, that's not his point with bringing them up. Now, this is Hagar. Now, this Hagar, he says, is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. This is really significant again as it relates to Romans 9. Because we see in Romans 9, the nation of Israel, right, in slavery, not really attaining to the promises of God, not really attaining to the freedom that God wants for his children. They're actually not free, uh, Paul says here. But he says that that slavery, that spiritual analogy of, of Hagar and Ishmael, that that's actually the present Jerusalem, the present Jerusalem who had just uh, rejected the light that God had brought to them, the great light of Jesus, the Messiah, and they had missed him uh, because of their, their hardened hearts, because of their disobedience to God, because of their unbelief. They had missed the Messiah. They had missed Jesus. And now they are in slavery. Uh, they, they were in unbelief, and, and, and so Paul says the present Jerusalem is the correspondent uh, uh, analogy of, of Hagar, that Hagar is the present Jerusalem. Um, and then he says, but the Jerusalem above, um, the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. So who, whose mother? Well, our, as in Paul himself, who is including himself in that, and those he's talking to, which is the church, believers, those who have put their faith in Christ. Sarah is the mother of, of those with faith. Um, Sarah is the mother with those uh, who, like Sarah, like Abraham, obtained the promises of God, ultimately who obtained the righteousness of God, not by an unbelieving heart, that sets out to obtain righteousness by performance and by works and by effort, but a heart that trusts in the righteousness of God, the love of God, the mercy of God, the grace of God, the gospel of God, and that message of free salvation that he's given. Those who belong, who are children of, of uh, Sarah, are those with the faith of Abraham. Um, and, and again, this, this is where Calvinism would derail and miss the point that that Paul's point isn't to say that that children of Sarah those who 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 belong to Sarah who are children of Abraham are not just those who God has predetermined and elected um, the point is faith 
And we can, you know, it's a whole different topic to, to talk about, okay, well, how does one have faith? Who gets faith? Who's the first, uh, who puts forth the first, uh, decision who's the decisive cause i guess is one way of saying who's the decisive cause of us of a person's faith is it the person or is it god that's that's an entirely different discussion than uh what's on the table here and um as i mentioned before i want to tackle i want to handle that subject i want to talk about that in further videos but the point here is that paul doesn't even go there he's that that's not even in his mind here that's not that's not the issue on the table of of who decides who has faith is it god who puts faith in people or is it us who who choose faith Again, that's not on the table. That's not the point. So if we go there here, we're missing Paul's point. What's on the table, what is clear here, is that what Paul's arguing for is that true children of Abraham, true Israel, are those with the faith of Abraham. It's those who follow in the footsteps of, of faith, who choose to not depend on their own understanding, who choose to not get into that place of the flesh where they're disbelieving the promises of God, which produces Ishmael, which produces slavery, but remain in faith and patiently wait for God's promises. He's, what Paul's arguing for here is that those are the ones who inherit the promises. Those are the ones that God looks at. Those are the ones that God has chosen. And so then he goes on in Galatians verse 27, he begins to, to uh, quote an Old Testament passage. He says, Rejoice, barren woman who does not bear, break forth and shout, you who are not in labor, for more numerous are the children of the desolate than of the one who has a husband. That's significant. There's so much there. That's the gospel. You know, the, the children of the desolate. God's chosen the weak things of the world to shame the wise. He's chosen the the foolish things to shame the strong by all human wisdom. Human wisdom says that it's it's the woman with a husband who, who should have the numerous children, who, who should have the blessing of, of you know, a, a buttload of babies. <laughs> um, but but the gospel turns everything upside down and it says, no, it's the children of the desolate. It's the children of the barren woman who has the, the most children, who's the most blessed. And what's that a picture of? Again, that's a picture of, of faith versus works. Galatians, the whole subject is faith versus works, where Paul's making a case from the Old Testament trying to explain, guys, do not go back to to reliance on your own efforts, your own human will, willpower, your own, what you're willing to bring to the table before God. Don't go there. Stay. Just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, so continue to walk in him, rooted and built up in him. Rely on him by faith. You you receive Christ. You came to him. You, you receive God's favor and blessing, and God poured out his spirit on you on the basis of you just simply believing in him and relying on him. And now you're going to go back to trying to, you know, observe days and months and seasons and years is what he goes on to say. You're going to go, you're going to try to get God's favor and you're going to try to become sanctified and perfected by your, your own works and by keeping the law and what you can do. Uh, that's what Paul's saying. The whole point of Galatians is, is Paul saying to not do that because what God has chosen is those of faith. Those who are children of Abraham are those of faith who, who walk in the steps, the footsteps of Abraham. And so again, this is the gospel here. God has chosen the weak thing to shame the wise. It's, it's the children of the desolate uh, who are more than, than the one who has a husband. And in the same way, it's, it's those who don't have anything to bring to the table. It's those who come to God with nothing. While we were weak, Christ died for us. 
It's those who come to God weak and dirty and broken and who, who don't uh, hide like Adam and Eve and try to cover themselves. Those are the ones who receive God's blessing and who have more children than the one who has a husband. And so the one who has a husband, what does that mean? What does that represent? Well, it's the one who brings something to the table, who has something to offer. The woman with a husband, by all natural wisdom, should be the one with more children. And in the same way, the temptation of Satan on God's people that was going on in Galatians here is that it's, you know, what he puts in our minds is, guys, it's, 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 the, ones who, it's the ones who work for God. It's the ones who do something for God who are going to get his blessing. You know, if you really want to be in God's favor, uh, then, then you better do something. You know, do your part. Put forth your, your best efforts to, to get rid of your sin and do what you need to do to, to make God happy with you and to become more like Jesus. You do your part. You work. You put forth effort because it's those who put forth effort. It's those who bring something to the table who God accepts. It's those who bring something to the table and put forth effort who get ahead in this life. And so that, that, all that I just said, that's the temptation of Satan. That's not true. That's not the truth. That's a lie. And, and that's what human wisdom says. It's the one who has a husband who should have the most children uh, by all natural wisdom. Uh, by all human understanding, that's the person who should get, who should have the favor and blessing. Again, this is a picture of faith versus works. The, the, the inclination of the human heart is to say it's the one who works that will get God's favor. It's the one who does his part, who puts forth energy and effort, who will, who will free himself from sin eventually if he just sticks with it. And that's the one who has a husband, but it's, but God, again, he flips that upside down. He says, Nope, it's the desolate one. It's the one who, who's barren, who has, you know, like Sarah, who had no, there's no possibility that by all human standards, she should have a kid. And just in the same with us by all, uh, if we actually, uh, correctly estimate ourselves, there's no way we can be righteous. There's no way we can do it. We have nothing to bring to the table, but God says it's those who acknowledge that and who don't try to bring anything to the table, who belong to the, the Jerusalem above, whose mother is Sarah, the, the mother of faith, if you will. Um, and this is, this is the church. This is Christians. This is true children of God and children of Abraham. And so going on in Galatians 4 and verse 28, he says, And you, brethren, you, brethren, like Isaac, are children of of promise. So again, in Galatians, Paul's trying to get them back to saying, look, guys, don't revert to the law. Don't try to come to God on the basis of law, works, and human effort. You're children of promise. You're those who stay in the steps um, of Abraham, who, who walk by faith and not by sight. You're those who live before God. You live by bread alone. And you, or you don't live by bread alone, but you live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. You, you guys are, you're children of God's word. You're, you're those who get life every day. You get energy. You find your righteousness. You find God's righteousness rather, not by what you bring to the table, not by the efforts you put forth, but by grabbing hold every day, every moment you grab hold of God's promises. You grab hold of them and you receive them and you believe them. And it, he's saying, don't stop walking that way. Obviously, these guys had the capacity to make the free will decision to stop walking that way. And in some form, they have. Uh, many in this, this church in Galatians had made the free will decision to, to walk, uh, to start reverting back to a different way of walking before God. And Paul's saying, don't. 
make the decision to walk according to the Spirit again, just as you've seen me doing it and, and the apostles and those who brought the gospel to you. Walk by faith and not by sight because you are children of promise. Again, that's just another way of saying you're children of faith. You're those who walk by faith and you're not those who are uh, uh, according to the flesh. And then he says, but as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit. So it is now also. But what does the spirit, the scripture say, cast out the bondwoman woman and her son for the son of the bondwoman should not be an heir with the son of the free woman. And so all that's just another way of Paul saying, uh, get rid of that slavery mentality that you're walking in or that's that's persecuting you. Really, it's persecuting that that f childlike faith inside of you, that that true spirit man inside of you who's, who's sealed with the spirit, that true part of who you are, who God has made you, that new creation is actually being persecuted by that other part of us that wants to walk before God according to works. So to bring all of that back to Romans 9, again, we're focusing on this here where, where Paul says, this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. So this son here, he's bringing up this analogy. He's explaining that, listen, God has a chosen people. He has a, a people that out of Israel, a category of people even within Israel who truly belong to Israel. He has a category of children of Abraham who are true children of Abraham. And he says one representation of this is Isaac. So what we see from Galatians, Paul brings Isaac up not as an example of, of Calvinistic predetermined election, um, but as an example of faith, as an example of God's chosen basis of faith as a way to relate to him. And so, again, I think if we miss that, if, if, we, if we start to misinterpret what Paul is saying here, we derail from his point. So let's go on and... and uh, in verse 10, it says, and not only this, so not only this story of Isaac and Ishmael and Sarah and Abraham, but there was Rebekah also, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac, for though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose, according to his choice, would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, and here again, we're going to see that he, Paul makes categories again. And all these categories he's making are just tied back to the categories he makes at the beginning of the chapter. When he contrasts fleshly descendants of Abraham with, spirit, with true spiritual descendants of Abraham. And so at this point, he's going to do that same thing again when he brings up Jacob and Esau. And so he says the older, which was Esau, right? Here's the first category. The older will serve... The younger. So here's those categories. So, which again ties into, so the first category, the older, Esau. So he'd be in the category of children of the flesh. That Esau is a picture, uh, a spiritual picture of those who are merely uh, uh, Israelite according to the flesh. He's a picture of the flesh. And Jacob, he's that picture here of of valuing the Lord, that picture of faith, that picture of, you know, he wrestled with God and ultimately he, um, he gave up and he, he learned 
uh, surrender to God. He learned reliance on God. And so I think Jacob and Esau are a stark contrast. Again, Paul brings it up to contrast, um, not uh, not ultimately the the predetermined, you know, Calvinistically elect versus the Calvinistically non-elect, but to contrast those who approach God on the basis of the flesh or on the basis of works and those who approach God on the basis of faith. And so I'll explain a little bit more why I think that's clearly what's going on here. So think about this. He says uh, the older, right? The older uh, will serve the younger. So Esau was the older, right? So by all human standards, by all human wisdom, the older brother should have got the blessing. He should have been the one chosen by God. But even before they were born, God said, I choose not the older one, not the stronger one, not the more manly one, not the one by who by all human standards should be first in first place. But what I choose is the younger one. This is just another way where God is saying, you know, the, what he says all the time. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, right? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And so it's the weak. It's the, the person without strength. It's the person who by all human standards should not be first, who should not receive God's favor. Those are actually the ones God has chosen. First Corinthians, I think, explains this and is a great example of, of uh, what what's being communicated here by the illustrations of Jacob and Esau. So 1 Corinthians 1, 20 through 31 says, where is the wise person? Um, and so again, here's these, here's these categories. Where is the wise person according to the flesh? Where is the teacher of the law? Here's the strength and the, the human wisdom, what man has to bring to the table. Where's the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Since in the wisdom of God, the world, so this is all, again, this is worldly strength. This is human wisdom. This is uh, another uh, another uh, way of saying, you know, the human strength and effort and energy and willpower and, and what man has to bring to the table. But in the wisdom of God, uh, the world through its wisdom, through its own wisdom, did not know God. Um, but God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. So there's a foolishness to the message preached to, to the human mind, to human understanding. Um, but this is what God has chosen. And then verse 22, he says, Jews demand signs, Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. Again, at the end of Romans 9, I think we saw in the first video, um, and we'll see again when we get to the end of the chapter, um, that it says that the Jews have stumbled over this stumbling stone. Um, and so what is the stumbling stone? Well, the stumbling stone here we see is, is the simple foolish message of faith in Christ as the way of salvation. Um, that that's foolishness to the Gentile or to the Jew who, who wants to bring something to the table. Um, and it's easy for the self-righteous person to stumble over the gospel because it's the gospel is so simple and it requires that we do nothing but, but believe while self-righteousness wants to actually do something. It wants to add something. Self-righteousness wants to do its own part. While God says the foolishness of the gospel is that he doesn't require us to do anything. 
Um, it, it's just all by our belief and our faith in him. And so it says, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Here's a lot of Jacobs. Not many of you were wise. Not many of you were firstborn sons <laughs> is another way of saying this. Jacob was the second born, right? Who again, by all human standards, should not have been first in God's mind, should not have received God's favor. But God chose him as a picture that what he chooses in the world turns human wisdom and human standards upside down. God chose not the firstborn son, Esau. God chose the secondborn son, Jacob. And so this is, this is him saying that in another way in 1 Corinthians. He's saying not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. So by all human standards, Paul says to the Corinthians, you should have been in last place. By all human standards, you should not be inheriting the promises of God. By all human standards, you should not be righteous and accepted by God because you're, you're, no, you're weak, you're foolish, you're, you're, uh, you're not anything special. And that's Jacob. That was Jacob, his case, being the second-born son. Again, God choosing him over Esau is a picture of how he chooses the things that are weak. And that's what he says right here. It says, God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things. God chose the Jacobs. God chose the Isaacs, the Isaacs who, who came as a result of, of absolute human weakness and inability. Isaac came about as a, as a result of Abraham and Sarah's dead bodies who had zero to bring to the table. All they could do is just is say, God, you said this is going to happen, and so we believe it. And they, and, and they did nothing to help God bring about Isaac. And that is the weak thing of the world. But God uses those kind of things, those kind of people, to shame the strong. And in the case of Romans 9, what this looks like is God choosing the Gentiles, uh, the Gentiles in the world, who are coming to God on the basis, simply on the basis of faith, who don't have all these things that the Jews have to bring to the table before God. They don't, they don't have a DNA connection to Abraham. It, the promises weren't made to their, uh, to their nationalities. They don't have the, the law and the promises. The Messiah didn't come through the, their lines. Uh, and, and so, so they have nothing, you know, they're, they're in second place, just like, just like Jacob was, just like uh, Isaac was, in the sense that there is no human reason why he should have even been alive. And in this sense, uh, that's, it says that's the people that, of the world, the things of the world that God has chosen. Um, and so in this sense, the Jews who are coming to God with their strength, um, they're coming to God with their law keeping, with their self-righteousness, with all these things that by all human standards should impress God. You know, by all human wisdom, it should be, you know, we would expect uh, God to, to look at that and be impressed and to say, well, if you're going to do all that, well, yeah, I'll bless you. But that's just not the way God works. But rather, he chooses those who come to him with nothing. Um, he chooses here. Uh, continuing in 1 Corinthians 1, 28, he cho chose the lowly things 
and, and I think, in my opinion, this is all, you know, these are all synonyms of faith. He chose belief. Faith is the weak thing. Belief is the weak thing. Um, faith is something that in the Bible is always, it's contrasted with works. Faith is never described as a work. Faith is never said to be, you know, if you bring faith to the table, then you're bringing something. But if we have an accurate biblical understanding of what faith is, then we'll understand that to bring faith to God, that to believe him when he provides his word and provides the, the ability to believe in what he's spoken to us, the light he's given, when we believe, uh, we're not bringing anything to the table. But biblically, bringing faith to the table equals bringing nothing to the table. That's the biblical way to look at it. And so God chose that. He chose the lowly things of this world, the despised things. Jacob, again, we're, we're talking about Jacob and Esau. So Jacob, being the second born, would, by the human standards of those days, been the despised, the ignored thing, the lesser important thing. Um, and and he, the things that are not to nullify the things that are. Um, and so again, in the context of Romans 9, the things that are in this context uh, would be the strong things of law-keeping, the strong things of self-righteousness, of DNA connection to Abraham, all these things the Jews were bringing to God and now offended because God was saying, I don't accept that, I don't want that, and actually I choose this. I choose the Gentiles who are coming merely on the basis of faith. And he says he does that so that no one may boast before him. So going back to Romans 9, the older, Esau, is that picture, again, of strength. He's the picture of, uh, of what, uh, what a human would have to bring to the table before God, of self-effort, willpower, self-reliance, which all ultimately, uh, what all those things ultimately mean is a lack of confidence in God, a lack of belief that he's going to get done what he's promised, just like just like Abraham and Sarah did in that, in that season when they produced Ishmael. Um, while the younger Jacob, again, is that picture of, of the foolishness, uh, the foolishness of simply accepting the gospel. The foolishness in 1 Corinthians is, is what? It's, it's the con what's contrasted with the, the wise thing, according to human standards. The wise thing would be uh, the Jews who, who are attempting to come to God with their strength. The foolish thing is those who simply believe in the gospel, who simply believe like Abraham did. That's the foolish thing. That's what the younger, that's what Jacob here is a represent, a spiritual analogy of going back to what Paul says when he spells it out for us in Galatians, when he brings up examples from the Old Testament, when he's dealing with this issue of faith versus works, and he spells it out for us in Galatians 4.24, where he says, these things are to be taken figuratively, or they're an illustration, they're to be taken allegorically. Um, so they're, they're illustrations, they're spiritual illustrations, he says. That's what Isaac was, and, and I think it's, it's fair to say that's what Jacob and Esau are. He's bringing these up as, as spiritual illustrations, and Jacob serves as the same illustration as Isaac. That it's not an illustration, it's not, it's, it's not an example, I guess, of a, uh, of an unconditionally elect according to a, a Calvinistic understanding. And Esau is, would, would stand in the same category. He's the same spiritual illustration as uh, Ishmael was which was an example, who was an example and an allegory of, of human unbelief 
and human effort and energy and ultimately of self-righteousness. And that completely makes sense in this whole context when we see that what Paul's dealing with is the same issue in, in a different form, but it's the same issue as Galatians, where he's dealing with people who are so bound up in their minds with, with, the, uh, the con- with a works-based mentality, sort of with the law, with, with, uh, with the importance of, of their uh, Israelite descent, and which all are important things, and they're all blessed things, as Paul says at the beginning, but, but, uh, but they misunderstand that, that they misunderstood that it's those things that are giving them uh, righteousness before God, and that's their fault. That's, what's, that's really what's screwing them up, and that's what this whole thing is about. And I think, again, as we're looking at Galatians, it's so uh, important to look at Galatians when trying to understand Romans 9. And I think it makes it so clear what Paul is really trying to get at here. Um, And so then he goes on in Romans 9, 14, he says, What then shall we say? Is God unjust? So is God unjust that, you know, uh, this is kind of similar to me of of the story of Cain and Abel, where Cain brought his offering to God, Abel brought his offering to God, God accepted Abel's, and we know, you know, multiple places in the New Testament that describe Abel as having faith. So in some way, um, when Abel brought his offering to God, he was doing it by faith. What he was really offering to God wasn't anything but his faith and trust and reliance on God. That's why Abel's offering was accepted. But Cain brought to God an offering too. It wasn't like Cain was just like, no, God, I don't want anything to do with you. I hate you. I'm going to go live in sin. That, that wasn't Cain's mindset. I think Cain's mindset was the exact mindset of the Jews in this context in Romans 9, where they were bringing God an offering in sincerity. They wanted God's favor. They wanted God's acceptance. Cain wanted that from God, I believe. And so they brought just like just like Israel is doing here in Romans 9, they came brought God an offering. But where was where did that offering come from? Remember? Is an offering from the, the fruit of the ground, right? It came from the ground. God cursed the ground, if you remember that. And it, uh, when Adam and Eve fell, he cursed the ground, right? And so, so in some way, what Cain was doing, I think, was a, a picture and an act of human effort and energy, just like all these other things we're, we're seeing, all these other pictures, where what Cain was doing was trying to bring forth from the ground that God had cursed, and in the same way, God has cursed, you know, in a sense, our flesh and anything we try to bring to him from the flesh is cursed. It's filthy rags. God can't accept it. But Cain was trying to bring to God an offering, bring it forth from that place um, where God had cursed and God didn't accept it. That's exactly what the Jews are doing. It's not that they're not sincere. It's not that they don't actually want God's favor. It's not that they're actually not, they're not actually trying or putting forth effort. They are. They absolutely are. Um, Israel is in this in this context, but but God is still saying, I don't accept that. I don't accept what you're bringing to me, but I do accept the Gentiles what they're bringing to me, and and that is what is just driving these guys insane. Um, that that's so offensive to them, and they're saying, and that's what Paul is preemptively uh, knowing is going to come is that the Jews here are seeing God accepting the Gentiles offering of faith and accepting them while they're bringing their law keeping and their, you know, all the things we've listed over and over. 
being a part of Israel. They're bringing everything that belongs to that. And God's still saying, I don't accept that. I don't want that. Even though you're con- you continue to bring that to me, you've, you've not accepted my way. And so now, rather than accept your offering, I'm actually going to blind you and harden you and use you to, uh, to accomplish uh, mercy and salvation for the Gentiles. So you can see, you don't need a, a, even a Calvinistic determinism here to see what the offense would be of the Jews, why they're offended, why these questions are rising up. Because even for a modern day self-righteous person who would work their whole life and do all they can do to try to, to, to please God, and you know, still you can do that your whole life and not find God's favor. And uh, human wisdom would say, man, that's not fair. That's not right. God, I tried my best. I did everything I could. But what God sees is he looks at the heart and says, you didn't believe the promises I'd given. You didn't believe the light. You didn't accept and embrace the the offer that I was holding out. But you you um, just like the Jews, you ignored it, and and you didn't accept that invitation. But you chose to rely on your own ways, your own thoughts. You did what you wanted to do. You you brought to me your own understanding rather than trusting me. That's what Israel's doing here. And God's rejecting it. That's what Cain did, and God rejected it. And that's that's why there's this question rising up where Paul's saying, What shall we say? Is God unjust? Is God wrong to not choose works of the law? Is God wrong to have these Jews who are coming to him with so much sincerity, with with their DNA connection to Abraham, with with the claim that God you made promises to Israel, and God saying, I don't accept that. The instinct for the Jews would be, Well, that's not just, that's not right, that's not fair. But what does what uh, Paul reply with? He says, not at all. God's not unjust. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And so basically Paul's saying, look, guys, God can choose the kind of people. He can choose who he wants to have mercy on. Okay, so here's, here's what's not unclear. Like, is it, is it unclear biblically who God has chosen to have mercy on? It's very clear, and I think it's very simple. And, and like Paul, the Bible kind of has a one-track mind. Those who God has mercy on are who? Well, it's those who have faith. It's those who have the faith of Abraham. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Um, we are saved by grace through faith. Grace comes through faith. Mercy comes through faith and believing God. That's just God's chosen way. That's God's chosen vessel of mercy, faith in Christ. Um, is, is the way through which God has chosen to extend his mercy. And so when he says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion um, on whom I have compassion, what's not up in the air, what's not a mystery is who these people are. Um, and I think, um, again, I, I keep bringing up Calvinism and, and Reformed theology. I, I, I want to make clear, I'm not doing this to be a bully or to pick on anybody um, or I'm trying to be respectful as I'm doing this, but I just want to make it, the contrast clear. And I want to help clarify because I know when I, I read this stuff where my mind would go and how I could so quickly get off track and get off line from what Paul was actually arguing for. And so, and so when he says here, you know, I'll, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. Basically Paul's saying, look, God, God can have mercy on who he wants. He gets to choose the category of people. He gets to choose who he gives mercy to. Um, and so I think in a reformed understanding, they would say, well, this is just, it's kind of a mystery. God just chooses. He has mysteriously chooses and does choose 
who he gives mercy to. We don't know who, we don't know why, we don't know why he gives mercy to who he gives mercy to, and we don't know why he withholds it from who, the people that he does withhold it from. We don't know why God gives some people compassion and chooses to elect them and, and save them, and we don't know why he withholds it, uh, arguably from the vast majority, he withholds his compassion from the vast majority of humanity. And, and rather than uh, displaying his love and kindness and grace, he's chosen to display um, on the majority of people his wrath. Um, I think, and I, I won't say that's the mindset of all uh, Calvinists or people who hold the Reformed theology, but I would say that the most popular teachers today are really the ones I want to give a reply and an alternative view to, and I think that's kind of the understanding that they would give here. And so what I'm saying is that they would ultimately say that this is a mystery, that that who God chooses, who God gives mercy to, who He gives compassion to, they'd say it's a mystery. I would say, no, it's, it's just absolutely not. Um, the Bible doesn't leave that up to uh, to being a mystery. It's not a mystery. We see over and over again, both Old and New Testament, who God gives mercy to. It's it's uh, though you know, humble yourself, and God will lift you up. It's those who humble themselves. It's those who believe. It's those who seek after God. Um, it's it's the uh, the poor in spirit. You know, going back to that, it's the weak. It's the foolish thing of the world. Um, and so so we know that the category of people that. That, that God gives mercy to and gives compassion to, it's, again, it's not a mystery. It's not in the dark as to who, what kind of people those are. Um, and I think that would stay in the same context and stay in the same track of thought that Paul's on that, okay, listen, guys, you're offended. Uh, he's saying this to the Jews. You're offended because I'm saying God's not giving you mercy or compassion because you're coming to him with works of the law and he's rejecting that. And he's giving mercy to the Gentiles who are coming merely on the basis of faith. And he's accepting that. And, and I know Jews, you know, you're saying that's unjust, that's not fair. But look, God can show mercy to whoever he wants. He can choose, you know, he can, he can select the kind of people, he can select who he wants to have mercy on and who he wants to have compassion on. And then, um, and, and so again, that's not left in the air. What Paul's arguing for is, and God has chosen it's not a mystery who he's chosen to have mercy on or who he's chosen to have compassion on. Um, we just need to read the Bible and, and we'll see clearly who, what kind of people, what category of people um, that is. And that's those uh, with the faith of Abraham. And so um, Paul's just saying he has that right to choose. He can choose whatever he wants. And it's not a mystery as to what he has chosen. Uh, that's been made clear. So then 16, he says, it does not therefore depend on human desire or effort. So that's another way of him saying it's not, it doesn't matter what works you're doing, all your law keeping, all your DNA connection to Abraham, all that, it doesn't get you anywhere because it does not depend on works, but it depends on God's mercy. This really is just Ephesians 2 9. This is another way that Paul's saying Ephesians 2 9, where he says, um, it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This not from yourselves. That is the gift of God. That salvation is a gift. It's a gift of God. It doesn't come by human desire or effort or willpower. Um, it doesn't. And so the contrast here um, is it doesn't come by human desire or effort, but it comes by faith. So it, it's not by works so that no one can boast. Um, so, so the contrast here is, is not that it's, it's not by works and faith. Uh, again, a reform position would say, well, f you know, if, uh, 
when he says it's not by human desire or effort, or it's not by human will or effort, they would say, well, see there, it says it's not by human will. So it's not up to your free will to choose whether to believe God or not. And you're absolutely missing the point here if you go there, because what he's doing here is, again, he's doing the same thing he, he does in Ephesians 2.9, where he's contrasting, he's not contrasting uh, uh, works with uh, the work of faith with God's uh, unconditional election. He's contrasting works of the law with faith. And so faith is always described in biblical terms. It's always described as something that is in direct contrast with works. It's something that directly contrasts uh, human effort and, and uh, willpower, like Paul's describing here, that faith is, is the opposite of this. So when he says it doesn't depend on human desire or effort, I think you could rightly say it doesn't depend on human desire or effort, but on faith, which comes, uh, but on God's mercy, which comes through faith. So it's not about human desire and effort. It's not about us, what we, which is what the Jews were doing. They're bringing their sincerity, their efforts, and, and their, their willpower, which stands in direct contrast with faith. Um, to human desire and effort here, all, really what I'm trying to get across is this is not a synonym for faith which is what a Reformed position, what a Reformed teacher would want to communicate here. And I, I just um, sincerely think that's just wrong. That's just, that's just so mistaken. That is just so not the point that is being made here. But when he says it's not human desire, when he says it's not human desire or effort, um, he, that's, not a, that's not a synonym for faith. You couldn't put in there and say, so it does not depend on a person's faith, but on God's mercy. That, that just absolutely would not make sense. What does make sense is that he's, again, he's staying on that same track and, and he's saying, therefore, it does not depend, Jews, on your connection to Abraham, on your law keeping, on your sincerity of, of wanting my acceptance, of, of wanting God's acceptance and, and being like Cain, you're bringing everything to God that you can, you can give. Uh, that doesn't cut it because it doesn't depend on that human desire and effort but it depends on faith, right? It depends on being a child of promise. It depends on the faith of Abraham, that you're counted righteousness, righteous like Abraham. You're accredited that righteousness, not on the basis of human desire and effort, not on the basis of works of the law, but on God's mercy, which comes by faith, which we know by uh, so many scriptures in the New Testament. God's grace comes through faith. Faith is the, the doorway through which we, we attain God's mercy. In verse 17 of Romans 9, we'll finish it up here. Um, it says, For Scripture says to Pharaoh, I raise you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. So why does he bring up Pharaoh here? What's the purpose of bringing up Pharaoh at this point? Well, again, like we've said before, the Jews, not only are they cursed and separated from Christ at this point, the, the nation of Israel as a whole, it's, it's not receiving God's promises, and they're cut off from the Messiah, which is why they're offended and, and trying to figure out why that doesn't make God a liar. Not only that, but also they're being hardened and blinded so as to accomplish the salvation and, and mercy toward the Gentiles. And so what Paul does is he brings up an Old Testament example of where God does something very similar, where he took a, an already hard and, and um, sinful, rebellious man, 
Okay, so God didn't just grab Pharaoh and harden him in a vacuum, meaning that that um, that Pharaoh had already made some decisions. We can see um, there was there was already a lot of hardness and, and wickedness, you know, and and uh, and so I would challenge um, on this whole concept of hardening of who God hardens, why He hardens. Again, going back to this concept, I don't think it's left a mystery in the Bible who God hardens and why he hardens people. If we look at Romans 1 is just a great example where it says when people harden themselves and they they give up the knowledge of God that, that we all intuitively have, when you give that up and suppress it, that is when God gives us up. It's, it's, it's not before that. God doesn't give us up for the purpose of, of pushing us deeper and further into sin, but it's when we rebel against light he's giving us that eventually, you know, God is merciful and patient and gracious, and I believe he absolutely was with Pharaoh. God waited and waited, and he, he gave opportunities to repent, not, not only, I think, during the, the 12 plague story, but before that, we have no idea what was happening. I think what we can see coming into the story is that Pharaoh had some issues, that he had a wicked heart, um, and not in just a general sense that we all do, but, but there was, I think, some, some rebellion. Uh, I think a case could be made, basically, that Pharaoh had already been hardening his heart, and that's why God had chosen to use him as a vessel through which to bring the salvation of Israel, that he raised him up. He, he takes even, even sin, even when we choose to sin and rebel, like Israel did, they were choosing to rebel and, and they had not accepted the Messiah. God had invited them to the wedding banquet and he, he had sent his servants and then ultimately he sent his son and they killed him. Uh, they killed us, the son and they didn't accept the invitation. And so now God is saying, okay, well, I'm going to invite the, the lame and the crippled and the, the weak and the poor, which sounds familiar to everything we've been saying, I think. What he's saying is that God has the right to choose to give mercy to who he wants, and he has the right to harden who he wants. And I think the Bible doesn't leave it a mystery who God wants to harden and who he uses for that purpose. Like Romans 1 says, it's those who harden themselves. And, and we see that in Isaiah. Um, we see the process of hardening, that so many of the verses that talk about, they speak of blindness, where God blinds Israel and hardens them, and, and he gives them ears so they don't hear, eyes so they don't see. A lot of those come from Isaiah. But if you start in the beginning of Isaiah and start reading through the condition that these people were in, when God did blind them and harden them and gave them up, uh, it becomes pretty clear why he did that. And it wasn't that he just chose to harden them, uh, again, just kind of out of nowhere. But they were rebelling. They were being given light. And over and over, it, you know, I think in the first couple chapters of Isaiah, somewhere he talks about them being like a vineyard. Uh, and he says, what else could I have done for you? I've done everything I could to cultivate you and to bring forth fruit. And you just keep producing sour grapes. What else could I do for you? And, and, and so, so that is the view of God that Scripture gives us of what it looks like when God hardens somebody. It's not like God just sent back and, and like, hmm, I, who do I want to harden and destroy? destroy and eternally uh, damn, you know, and, and uh, it doesn't look like that. What it looks like is, is God reaching out and giving light and, and extending his hand and offering an invitation of mercy. And there's a refusal over and over and over. And eventually God says, okay, um, I will grant you that refusal. And he withdraws his mercy, he withdraws his grace. He withdraws the conviction of the spirit. He withdraws whatever that looks like, which allows the natural hardening of the heart to take place. You know, I don't think hardening of the heart looks like God reaching in and grabbing the heart and forcing it into hardness. You know, the scriptures say God does even tempt us into sin. 
let alone would he, you know, reach in and force our hearts into a sinful state. I think what hardening means, and, and you know, this is, a, this is kind of getting off topic. I think what hardening means is when God withdraws some of his mercy and grace and that restraining, uh, the, the restraining of his mercy and power and his spirit. And I think when we refuse him in specific determined ways over and over, he, he allows that, like Romans 1 shows us. And he gives us over it and he withdraws so that the natural tendency of the heart to harden and, and sin, the sinfulness that's already there, he just allows that to take a more powerful control of us. I think that's what he did with Pharaoh. Um, I think he just simply, because of who Pharaoh was, because of Pharaoh's rebellion, he, he said, okay, if that's who you are, I'm going to use you now for a vessel to bring about uh, the salvation of my people. And so he hardened Pharaoh in that way, in the sense in which he, I think he withdrew some of his mercy. He allowed Pharaoh's hardened heart to take more, more of a strong control over him so that he would continue to rebel and allow these plagues to continually, to continue to come. And so what, what Paul's arguing for, why he brings up Pharaoh is simply to say, look, God has the right to harden you guys. Um, you know, even though you're bringing all of your law keeping still, you refuse the offer of, of, of Jesus. You refuse your Messiah. You refuse the invitation. And so God has the right to harden you if he wants, you know, why are you complaining now that, that, that God's hardening, hardening you? And yes, he is. He's giving you up. He's sovereignly allowing things and working things so that your sin is just, it's being allowed to increase. And your the natural tendency would be to just lash back at that and say, "How is that fair?" Um, kind of again going back to Cain and Abel. That's what Cain Cain's kind of attitude of like, "That's not fair." You know, how can you? You know, I'm bringing you my offering. I'm bringing you everything I've I've got, and and I'm trying here, and and now you're gonna refuse it, but you're accepting my brothers, and so it produces that that murder and that hate in the heart. I, that's what happened to Cain. I think that's what's happening here to Israel is that, uh, that carnal, uh, that hate, that, that, uh, fleshliness, uh, is just being stirred up by the truth that Paul's revealing here. So, so he raised up Pharaoh to display, uh, he says, display my power in you that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, again, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens whom he wants to harden. Again, I'm bringing this up. I don't want to attack. I just, I, th I think it's just, there needs to be a distinction made between what is being prominently taught by Reformed theology today about this passage and what I believe Paul's actually getting at. Reformed theology, I think here would say that it's a mystery. It's a mystery who God hardens. He simply has certain people that for whatever mysterious reasons, um, he hardens them. Um, and for whatever mysterious reason, he has, uh, he has a certain group of people you know, the elect who he has mercy on. And, um, and so my argument here is just that that's not a mystery in, in the Bible, that, that God hasn't left that a mystery. I think he's made it pretty clear over and over the category of people, the kind of people that receive his mercy and the kind of people that he hardens. Um, and, and the people that receive mercy are those who come to him on the basis of faith. Um, and, and that's what connects them to the mercy of God. And those who persist in works of the flesh, who persist in trying to come to God on the basis of self-righteousness, which ultimately is just unbelief, these people, God has the right to reject. And no matter if Abraham's your, your grandpa, you know, 
it doesn't get you anywhere before God. And that's what they were offended about. That's what the Jews were offended about. And, and not only will that not get you anywhere before God, but if you continue to persist in that and you don't accept God's way for us to, to enter into a relationship with him, then, then ultimately you might even be used as a, a, a you know, you might be blinded and hardened. He's going to give you up to stuff. Um, and it's just going to stir up more and more sin. You know, the law increases sin is what it says. He'll give you up to the law. Um, the law will increase sinfulness. Um, the more you try to, to do things on your own, the worse you're going to become. Um, and God has the right to do that. He has the right to give mercy to people on the basis of faith because that's what he's chosen. He could have chosen a different way. Um, he could have chosen uh, the ideas of Reformed theology. He could have done that. I just think the Bible makes it clear that he did not. I just think there's nowhere in the scriptures that you see him making that, that sort of sovereign determination. And I think you definitely don't see it here in Romans 9. There's just no reason to go there if, unless we derail from Paul's line of reasoning because his focus is faith in Christ and salvation by grace through faith. God's sovereign right to choose faith, his sovereign right to reject works. And, uh, and so I think that's, that's what he's arguing for here. Thank you for listening to the Great Light Studios podcast. To find more information and resources or to watch our films, you can find links in the show notes of this episode to our Facebook, YouTube, and other social media accounts.